Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode, the second part of the Affirmative Action series of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. Everything from intergenerational trauma to international politics to interracial solidarity. I'm your host, Angel Arena, and you are listening to the second episode of season two. So if you haven't listened to the first episode of the season that I released last Saturday with Professor Janelle Wong of the University of Maryland, in which we discuss the origins and myths of affirmative action and the Harvard case and the Yale DOJ lawsuit, I encourage you all to go listen to that first, since it has a lot of very relevant and useful information, some of which we are going to break down today. But in this episode, I have Eden Sinai and Nina Todd, the co-heads of the Black Student Alliance at Yale, also known as BSEI, and Kevin Kwok and Michelle Young, the co-moderators of the Asian American Student Alliance, also known as ASA. And together, the four of us we're going to have a conversation about the Yale DOJ lawsuit, uh, data aggregation, the media, allyship, um, our own experiences in college missions, and more. So Eden, Nina, Michelle, and Kevin, thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for lending your time during our long break. And also thank you so much for all of the work that you have been doing in your respective organizations. I know this has been a super tough year um, in a lot of different ways and, and considering, you know, a lot of us were virtual, like having to conduct online meetings and virtual events. Like, thank you all. Like, I respect and, and appreciate all the work that you've been doing. So thank you for that. Um, but first things first, do you all want to introduce yourselves? You know, mention things like your name, pronouns, where you live slash where you're from, uh, what you do on campus, and really anything else you want to share with the listeners. Um, Nina, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Nina. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm currently in Germantown, Maryland, where my family lives. Um, but uh, during the school year, I am in New Haven. Um, at Yale, I'm a junior political science major and an education studies scholar. Um, and like you said on campus, I am one of the co-presidents of the Black Student Alliance at Yale, also known as BSE, alongside Eden. Um, I'm also the director of the Jane Matilda Boland program at Yale, which is a Yale-led educational space for high school students focused on Black diaspora studies. Um, and I'm a member of the Yale Undergraduate Legal Aid Association. Great, thank you. And Eden, do you wanna go next? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Eden. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, right now, I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, where my family lives. Uh, but like most of us here uh, during the school year, I'm in New Haven. Um, I'm a junior at Yale studying cognitive science uh, with a focus on human behavior and computation. Um, and alongside Nina, I'm the co-president of the Black Student Alliance at Yale, uh, in addition to being a consent and communication educator um, and working as a student assistant at the house. Perfect, thank you. And Michelle, do you wanna go next? Sounds good. Hi everyone, I'm Michelle. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently in New Haven, um, but I'm originally from the Bay Area, California. On campus, I'm a junior studying economics in Pearson. And um, I was one of the 
previous co-moderators of the Asian American Students Alliance. We just did board turnover. So Kevin and I have now passed on those rules. Um, but besides that, I'm also a peer liaison for the Asian American Cultural Center. I guess I can introduce myself next. Um, yeah, hi, my name is Kevin. Um, I go by him, his pronouns. Um, like Michelle, I'm currently in New Haven, but I am originally from the Bay Area, California. Um, on campus, I'm a junior studying psychology and history of science, medicine, and public health. Um, and as Michelle said, uh, we recently did board turnovers, but I was one of the previous co-moderators of ASA. Um, besides ASA, I also conduct research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Perfect. Thank you all so much. And I really hope the listeners are able to get a better sense of who you are and just, yeah, just learn more about you as we have our discussion today in this episode. But the first question I want to start off with, uh, it's pretty broad, but I think it's a good starting point for a conversation. Um, what kinds of conversations have you all led in your respective student organizations, or even if it's just casual conversations you've had with friends on campus when it comes to affirmative action? And anyone can take this question and anyone can follow up. Um, I guess I could start off. Uh, within BSA, um, you know, I think being Black students at a predominantly white institution like Yale, um, the concept of affirmative action is always on our minds. Just um, either externally being told that the spots that we have here are, you know, only as a result of a benevolent admissions counselor. Um, but I think, especially with the DOJ lawsuit uh, that came about like right at the beginning of the school year, um, we've been speaking really candidly, uh, both through statements, just talking about how frustrating it is um, to still have our uh, place at Yale and other similar universities questioned, um, and also just about the various um, implications just with class, with race, um, that are made when, um, you know, institutions like the Department of Justice uh, want to threaten the legitimacy of affirmative action as a practice. Yeah, at BSA, um, the suit and affirmative action as a whole has been an ongoing topic um, throughout the semester especially after the finding came out in August. Um, you know, we've had a lot to talk about internally within like our executive board, as um, Eden mentioned, but also externally with the broader Black community being um, one of the student organizations that the NAACP is representing in the lawsuit. We have the task of representing almost all Black students um, at Yale, even though our membership may not include them. Um, so that's a delicate balance that we've been really vocal about. Um, but also as a leader of another student organization, um, the Bolin program, we um, led a conversation with high schoolers, um, a couple, uh, the team, the Yale Bolin team um, and I, the first week that we had the program. Um, and it was really shocking to me how few high school students, especially black identifying high school students knew about affirmative action. Um, and I think it's been like something in the air for all black students all over the country. Um, and I think now the danger of this now outgoing administration and the conservative Supreme Court um, is heavy on our minds and something that we're always um, talking about and considering. Eden and Nina, were there specific, um, I, I like as to what you just said, Nina, like with your surprise as to like how many high school students knew about affirmative action, like I thinking back 
to when I first heard of affirmative action, it was also like very late in my high school time, uh, which is pretty surprising. And, and we'll, we'll get into some questions about like how our perception of affirmative action has changed over time. But um, are there specific uh, like topics of discussion that you both have led and had in the BSA space when it comes to affirmative action, like specific points of contention or just discussion? Um, I think we, like I said, have had conversations internally and externally with the broader house um, community as um, an organization. I feel as though um, we could have done more in this semester to have it to open the space as the Black Student Alliance for a community conversation for our members, for members of other um, affinity groups um, and racial, you know, racial identities. Um, so, um, like I mentioned, we have really been trying to um, be cognizant of the balance that we have to strike with um, representing Black students on the campus. Um, and so we want, we had, um, an explicit conversation, like I mentioned, about um, how the taking the temperature of the house um, in terms of the lawsuit, in terms of um, our representing them, um, especially with the limited number of um, organizations that the NAACP can take on in the suit. So conversations like that have been ongoing. Um, and as well as, um, like you mentioned earlier, those like casual conversations with our peers throughout the semester. Um, and I remember especially um, at the end of August when the finding came out, um, I feel like there was a general feeling of shock amongst us all. Yeah, I would just say, uh, just to add on to what Nina said, like specifically with um, being very, very conscious and intentional about um, the groups that we represent as BSA, um, also taking into account, um, like within the Black community, within Black students that make up the population at elite institutions, also like being very clear and about like what makes up those demographics as well um, and thinking about intersections with class intersections with um, generationally african-american students versus students whose parents or themselves have immigrated here um, and thinking about what implications affirmative action has on you know how um, that representation uh, plays out within black communities in these spaces as well yeah nina what you just said reminded me like i think earlier in the year like back in september maybe the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale, the AACC, like we had some sort of intergenerational dialogue on racism and anti-Blackness within Asian American communities. And I think affirmative action was briefly touched on, but I also feel like having some sort of community conversation where maybe some students from different racial backgrounds and like maybe from the different cultural centers or something could come together to have some sort of community conversation on affirmative action. Like that would be something I would go to. And I think it would be something very cool to plan and organize too. I agree. Um, I feel as though like part of like, obviously hindsight is 2020. Um, and looking back on the semester, I could say something like, oh, I feel like we could have done more. Um, but in the moment, it was very like, touch and go, like we were confused a little bit um, because 
because, you know, the finding came out and then we were like, not sure if there was going to be a lawsuit and then there was a lawsuit. And then now we're not sure if the suit is going to continue to the next administration. Um, so I think come the next semester, if the suit is still around, still relevant, and um, especially in light of the new um, motions that are being filed for the Harvard case, I think you're right. Like a community conversation could be really healing. Um, Michelle and Kevin, are there any specific conversation points that you guys want to touch on? Yeah, I guess with the topic of affirmative action, I think it's a very kind of controversial and divisive issue among the Asian American community. Um, and I don't think like the, the Yale Asian American community was any exception. Um, so um, with regards to like um, also, we did put out a statement in, um, in conjunction with um, a couple other um, Asian American student organizations on campus. And I think like, because of like the fact that there are a lot of tensions regarding this specific topic, I think when we released that statement alongside other student organizations, um, it was less about like thinking about us as an organization representing like all Asian Americans, rather, I think like when we put out that statement, um, we were thinking more about like, you know, what are our values as like an organization and, you know, us Asian American students within this org um, and how we personally view affirmative action. So just disclaimer, when people are reading that statement, um, it is not, I would say not entirely representative of the views of the entire Yale Asian American community um, on affirmative action. Um, and yeah, I, I think that the contentions are a lot because there are just a lot of misconceptions about affirmative action and specifically like how it's been used um, and framed as something that's always um, targeted against like discriminating against Asian Americans. And I think like because of those misconceptions, um, it's become a very, you know, kind of very, uh, again, divisive issue among Asian Americans that definitely needs to be remedied. And I think like, um, as kind of Mina kind of mentioned also, I think like we could have done a lot more in terms of like introducing more conversations among our community and trying to target those people who do have those misconceptions and are probably maybe against like affirmative action because of those misconceptions. Um, but again, with pandemic and such like that, um, it was a very difficult semester to kind of get through. Um, but again, uh, with our new board, um, we really hope that like those conversations like don't falter and continue on because um, definitely there is a lot of merit of like trying to galvanize the Yale Asian American community and also broader Asian American communities in supporting um, this practice. Yeah, and I think that Eden brought up a really great point about being conscious of the demographics that you might be representing. I think for also especially, I think because affirmative action is a topic that people from different demographics have super varied opinions on depending on for example their proximity to whiteness or like um, class and what their background might be with citizenship and things like that and so there are certain groups within um, the space that we try to represent that maybe have more benefits um, from affirmative action and others that don't benefit as much but have privilege elsewhere and so when we were writing our statement that was something that we were particularly trying to be conscious of and i think that's why the way that our statement ended up um, being formatted was just a broad statement on what asa's values were and then a bunch of more um, culturally specific organizations for example an organization uh, representing um, perhaps the Japanese students or um, the Vietnamese students would be able to sign on if they agreed with our beliefs. Um, but I think that was something that was 
touchy or something that we just had to be more wary of while we were um, approaching this from an Asian American perspective, just because I think something that we talked about a lot in our statement is how Asian American is such an umbrella and monolithic term that doesn't really describe well the nuances of the community um, and how there are certain groups that are much more privileged than others. And I think that was just something that was like on the top of our minds while we were going through this process. I mean, within your spaces and uh, different spaces that you go about on campus um, and the conversations that you've had about affirmative action, like within the Black and Asian communities, like how have you all specifically found that views on affirmative action has varied? Uh, depending on people's ethnicity, their class, their their immigration status, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I think the intersections of race and class very much influence how um, people kind of view affirmative action. Um, it tends to be like more wealthier East Asians that are usually against like the, um, this practice, while um, I, I would argue that, I don't want to generalize, but I would argue that like, it's usually like um, lower socioeconomic status, um, Southeast Asian, South Asians who tend to be more supportive of affirmative action, primarily because they also do benefit from it. Um, if you look at like the DOJ case in particular, um, they include like a history of like Yale's um, affirmative action practice. And, you know, at one point, like in, they say in like the 1960s, 1970s, like all Asian applicants did benefit from affirmative action. But at, at one point, um, they removed like Asian from like the, the category of like, racially favored applicants. Um, but still um, there are like, they do mention that like there are specific like Asian subgroups such as like Cambodians, Hmong, Vietnamese, um, Asian Americans who um, do benefit um, or do, are, are still considered under like the racially favored applicant category. Um, but the interesting about the DOJ case um, is that like when they filed the complaint, they completely excluded um, these Asian American subgroups within their complaint. Um, so again, like it is kind of going to like the topic of disaggregation about like how it's really interesting in this particular case that like data disaggregation is used as a justification, um, a very false justification, honestly, to like dismantle affirmative action. Um, when in reality, if you actually look at data disaggregation, like it speaks to like the level of disparities um, among the Asian American umbrella and why like this particular practice is so necessary, not just for other communities of color, but also for Asian American subgroups. I feel like in, at least in my personal experiences, differences are less amongst like perceptions of affirmative action and whether or not it's a viable practice and more like granular conversations about like what black representation in elite spaces means. And when we talk about black representation, who actually is being represented. Um, so kind of, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, like generationally African-American students are underrepresented in elite, in elite spaces, although um, affirmative action is meant to right those systemic problems that um, exist in this country and that generationally African-American people have been um, subjected to. Um, so that's something that is pretty constantly, consistently brought up in conversation um, so that we're able to actually be conscious of who, you know, is actually in the room um, when we're thinking about these issues. 
And the next question I have for all of you is, how has your perception and your understanding of affirmative action changed throughout time? Um, you know, from when you first heard of it to what you learned in high school and now at Yale. Um, I've always kind of, I wouldn't say always, um, my dad as a very politically um, in tune person um, has stressed the importance of affirmative action since I was, I guess, at the beginning of high school. Um, so I think it was always an important concept for me um, as a Black student in historically white spaces from a very young age. Um, I didn't really pay attention to it too much until um, I would say the Fisher case in the Supreme Court case, Fisher II in 2016, um, which kind of 2016 was that year when we start, started seeing the Trump um, administration begin this crusade, I would say, um, against affirmative action and the conservative party shifting to support that um, and that fight um, continuing with the SFFK. SFFA cases um, at UNC and UT and now Yale or Harvard and potentially now Yale. And as I entered college, I think as a black leader on campus, I think now I see it or I have begun to see it as an increasingly important issue to be literate on and actively discuss and facilitate discussions on, especially in this fight. Um, so I would say it hasn't, you know, my, my opinion on it hasn't changed um, in all these years, but I think my um, value of it um, and my literacy on it has. Yeah, um, I would say I, I totally agree. Um, I think when I was younger, especially in high school, um, I saw affirmative action um, as something to like succeed in spite of. I, you know, there was this perception that I had to prove that I could be successful whether or not um, there was a measure that was meant to help me. Um, and I think that was a mentality I had to, you know, just shift out of and recognize that, you know, affirmative action isn't, as it's communicated, it's not a handout, it's not a leg up in any way. It's simply the, um, the redistribution of uh, systemic power. Um, and I, like, I had to you know, shift that mindset within myself. Um, and as Nina said, begin to help other people reach that conclusion as well. I would say I've also had a similar experience where I've come to be more literate on the topic. Um, but I actually came from a predominantly East Asian and um, more privileged South Asian demographic high school. And so my initial experience or even encounters hearing about affirmative action were people telling me um, it's going to be more difficult for you to get into college because people are racist against Asians. And just with like, that was all the context I was given. Um, and I think given that I didn't give it much thought because I figured if that's what it is, then okay, I'll just try my best anyways. And whatever happens, happens. Um, and so honestly, I came into college with all of these misconceptions about affirmative action and never having actually given it much thought until um, I think as I came into this space and joining ASA and other groups where I was able to meet more politically 
aware, knowledgeable Asian Americans. Um, I think that was when I actually began educating myself on what affirmative action actually does. Um, and yeah, and I think from there, I've of course been in support of affirmative action, but it was definitely a rough first impression. Yeah, I think very similar to Michelle um, growing up in the Bay Area, like there were a lot of like there was a lot of disinformation regarding like affirmative action that was kind of just spread around. Um, admittedly, um, I think like when I first came into Yale, I think I, I remember distinctly that like there was like a, a campaign among Asian American students on campus about affirmative action. I can't remember like what specific event kind of initiated like those events, but I just remember there being like a lot of campaigns um, regarding affirmative action. And I think I remember having a conversation with like my friends um, about just like affirmative action stuff. And I think like he brought up a good point that like I was kind of like very much inclined to kind of believe at first about like, you know, affirmative action is largely just been framed within like the, the, the lines of like race. And it's always kind of been like seen as that, like, but um, something that he mentioned was that like, you know, would, wouldn't it be better if like there was an affirmative action practice that was you know, solely based on class, because if we talk about like, you know, disparities and like, just like life attainment and like success and all that kind of stuff, like socioeconomic mobility um, and having the material resources to, you know, attain that mobility, it's always regarding our own class. But I think like gradually as I moved across Yale um, and, you know, became more literate and more educated on this topic, I think like that also would not work in, in the sense that like class oppression and you know, systemic forms of a class oppression are very much racialized ones. Um, and there's a lot of like nuances and intersections of place, class and race that need to be looked at together um, in, in conjunction with other identities as well too. Um, and I think like that kind of conversation and education really allowed me to kind of, you know, I guess formulate my like opinion now and my stance on affirmative action as like a necessary practice um, or, a necessary practice that could be reformed further um, in other ways as well too. Yeah, Kevin, I think my mindset was also very much similar to your friend because um, like growing up when I thought about college admissions, just like growing up in like a low income household, I used to think like, oh my gosh, like why are we thinking about race when we could, like why are people getting all hung up on race and admissions when there are these like wealthy legacy kids and these donor people who are who are taking like a significant amount of spots. Um, that was like sort of my previous thinking. And I think I also held a lot of miscon uh, misconceptions about affirmative affirmative action. And I think um, I think this is also something that someone um, in the comments of your first uh, statement, your, B, your the first BSA statement that you all put on Instagram, like someone said like a similar thing too that I read in the comments. Like there's this person who was like, oh, if there is this like poor, if there's this like poor white kid or something and there's this like rich black kid or something, like we shouldn't just let like the rich person get in but I think that also is like such a misconception that it's so like black and white as that you know um that people are getting in just because of their race and that there are like racial quotas and stuff like that which is like a very big mis misconception because racial quotas are illegal I believe um so it's like 
people have just, there's just so many myths and misconceptions out there when it comes to affirmative action and how race is sort of incorporated into college admissions decisions. And like, I, I can say, and probably like all of us don't, we don't know exactly what's happening behind the admissions doors, right? Like we don't know how exactly they're taking into account race besides what they tell us. Um, but I don't know, just like from their word that it's like a race conscious thing and the fact that race is like very much inherently tied to all of our experiences. And when people write about that in their essays, et cetera, like that's just an inherent part of who they are. Um, I don't know, like, I guess I'll like trust their word on that for now, but I just think there are so many myths out there. And if there, if there was just like a little more transparency or just like a way for people to clear up those misconceptions, it's possible that it could, like affirmative action could be less controversial. But I'm curious to know what you guys think about that too. Yeah, um, I think, you know, there's no one single box that any applicant is gonna fit into. And a large problem with the myths that surround affirmative action is that um, people believe that they're being judged on one aspect of their identity. Um, so it thinks that, so people think that they're coming into the process and all multidimensionality of them as a person is stripped away and they're being valued on these very specific data points. Um, which I can't say for, obviously, again, like I'm not an admissions officer, so I can't say for sure that's not true. Um, but the whole idea of affirmative action is just, again, um, rectifying any, like those different like systemic issues. So it's not just race, but it's also gender is taken into account. Um, socioeconomic status is taken into account. Um, so it's very important to understand that people are being valued um, as a whole. Um, and I think another thing to very much take into consideration, I, and you touched on this um, earlier when you were describing the comment that the person left, um, but in that particular scenario that the commenter um, laid out in terms of the uh, poor white student and then the affluent black student, um, again, not only would, <laughs> I, don't, I guess like how to phrase this is that like, if they've gotten to the stage where, um, uh, they're being valued for uh, admission. Both students reach the qualifications for admission and it's a matter of like finding factors within their application that make them most attractive to the admissions committee. Um, and that won't be race on its own. That won't be socioeconomic status on its own. Um, and I think it's very important to know that, you know, no one's brought up and uh, over like other qualified students just because uh, they fit a certain category. Um, I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, I feel like people like the person who commented on the BSA post see race um, or I should say see affirmative action as only considering one person, pitting one person versus another person um, or pitting a couple people versus another couple people, admits, potential admits, students, applicants. Um, while the thing is we need to look at race because we live in a racialized society. And I feel like the race of an applicant will also give the admissions committee a bigger picture as to where their people and their, you know, um, people who look like them stand in society, how they may have gotten to the place where they are 
Um, because the fact is rich black people, I mean, white people have generational wealth to become rich. Black people in America probably don't. Um, so that might be another thing to consider. Um, the thing is like, it's not just a rich white person and a rich, or a rich black person versus a poor white person. It's a rich black person who did this, this, and this, and this, and comes from this, this, and this background. Um, so it's like a lot richer of a picture than I think people understand it to be because we come from a racialized society in which these things are important to understand, to understand a person. Cool. So I think we can move on to another question. Uh, I wanted to ask if you all had any specific points or thoughts on the Yale DOJ lawsuit that you wanted to touch on. Uh, I didn't have a specific question, but just wanted to hear uh, what you had to say. Uh, But I guess maybe like, what do you think will come of it considering the new presidential administration and the uh, conservative Supreme Court we have as well? I did like want to say that um, it is possible that the case won't go away. Um, I think it's been like publicized that SFFA is um, filing a motion to become a plaintiff on the Yale case. Um, so that might allow the case to continue beyond a Trump DOJ. Um, so I think that is an important point as well as the future of the Harvard case is an important point to consider in the future of um, a potential Yale lawsuit. Um, because um, the leader of SFFA has um, announced that they will take it to the Supreme Court. Whether or not the Supreme Court accepts it is, you know, um, up in the air. But if they do, a heavy, I think, 6-3 conservative majority would likely set a dangerous precedent for a Yale case. Um, So I think we're kind of at a crossroads and at a tipping point in the fight for affirmative action that's really important and really scary. Um, especially considering the fact that the Yale and the Harvard lawsuits um, are politically motivated. Um, And it has been said that the Yale lawsuit is baseless. Um, That comes from the president of Yale. Um, So it's really dangerous, um, especially considering the way it can go. Yeah, I think I just want to say, um, uh, as you know, kind of mentioned, it, it has been kind of publicized that SFFA might intervene um, with this case. And I think, like, if they do, um, you know, it does set a lot of, like, kind of scary po- um, possibilities for the future. But I think even more so, I think the Asian American community, specifically the Yale Asian American community, has to pay even closer attention um, to the, I would argue, the mistakes of, like, um, the wealthier Chinese Americans who, you know, fought with SFFA and try to dismantle affirmative action at Harvard and, you know, really dig into like looking for like the accurate information and the history of affirmative action and, you know, what this practice has seek to rectify. Um, because, you know, if it can, if this were to continue in the way that like, you know, Chinese Americans um, who really support FFA, SFFA's like claim um, to like dismantle affirmative action at Harvard, it could end up really awry, going awry for the, the, the future of affirmative action, not just here at Yale, but I think if, you know, this were to like end up really going badly and poorly, it could really set a precedent for like affirmative action in other colleges as well too. Um, so I think like all eyes are kind of on us um, if this case really does kind of go through. Um, so I think it's important for, I think Asian Americans to really pay attention and really 
analyze and dig deep into like their opinions and perspectives on their transaction. Yeah, I agree. It's like it's like very scary because um, it's like like this one guy, like Edward Bloom, and like all of these different supporters of his, and like they could knock down something that has precedent for like decades you know um and it's like what can us college students do at this point it's um pretty sad to think about but um yeah i think we can move on to the media portion um because this was something that I also talked to Professor Wong about the other day um, in the first episode, um, how like the whole Asian American like personal rating was really, really focused on in the media. And so I'm wondering like, from your experience reading various articles, reading uh, the news, watching the news, and how you have seen media portrayal of the cases and the lawsuit how like how has the media tainted your perceptions of affirmative action yeah like what what have you observed what have you seen um from the media that you have consumed um i think speaking directly on what you just brought up um of like personality scores um for asians who are applying to certain colleges i think that was something that i actually heard about when i was going through the application process and i remember i had an older friend who was telling me make sure that in your essays you come across as like some really quirky like out of the box asian american like you don't want to be put in the same box with the other asian americans because like you really need your personality and like uniqueness to shine and of course like being yourself and being genuine and coming across as like who you are is very important um i think when you're writing your personal statements and things like that um but i think the way it was framed was very much probably influenced by like media chasing like sensationalist stories being like yeah we need um like isn't it crazy that asian americans are scored on like a personality um like metric and so like they I think these stories are likely pushed forward to kind of stir the pot and create some drama um and I think I was actually mildly influenced by that when I was going through my application process um but I think yeah the more that we lean into those and listen into them I think that just skews our own perceptions of affirmative action but I think that yeah, I think those articles and forms of media are definitely out there. Um, but I think it's hard to tell people not to listen to them, um, especially like I remember growing up, I really trusted the news and my parents still like really trust um, certain news sources. And I think those definitely skew our perspective. Yeah, um, I think like with what Michelle was saying, like while there are, um, you know, good stories, good work being done on affirmative action that does allow for nuance. Um, a lot of what is being communicated doesn't allow for that nuance that is required to understand um, an issue as broad and as detailed as affirmative action, um, because the 
many different intricacies of what it means to um, evaluate a, an applicant as a whole can't really be communicated in a quick news story and a headline. Um, so often what is communicated out is very reduced down to the bare bones, which often is not um, an accurate representation of how the practice is actually carried out, um, which has been seen to affect perceptions of affirmative action. Yeah, I feel like the biggest thing that upsets me is the way that the like media portrays it as like a debatable topic, um, just because I get that there are people who like support it and who don't. Um, but I feel like we have, like you said earlier, decades of precedent for um, affirmative action. We have a 2016, like a very recent support, uh, Supreme Court case supporting <laughs> affirmative action. Um, but I feel like posing it as two opposite sides debating the merit of, you know, equity in higher education feels wrong to me. Um, just because like, I don't understand how you can debate equity. Um, you can debate how equity is achieved, but like, I feel like affirmative action is not, I don't know. It's not something that's wrong in my opinion. I really agree. Like 100% Nina, because that like, presentation of affirmative action as some sort of like yes no issue not only does it totally disregard the objective like value of equity in educational spaces it also just like totally dashes any hopes of examining affirmative action as a practice and seeking to make it better because it's constantly having to fight off uh uh, threats to its existence, rather than being able to be formed into a practice that is actually serving the students it's meant to serve in the best way possible, um, which is also incredibly frustrating. I know in our pre-meeting, um, you all mentioned, like, we don't, like, we shouldn't solely rely on affirmative action as, like, a remedy for, like, systemic inequity when it comes to access to education, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, like what, what kinds of changes would you all like to see in college admissions, um, in the US education system, in affirmative action, uh, when it comes to education access and equity? Um, I think like my largest problem with uh, the way that education inequity is presented is that um, access to these resources to education to knowledge is some sort of finite pie um, and that it's a zero sum game. So uh, if one person gains access, then someone else inevitably has to lose. Um, and I want that perception to shift uh, to make education as something that is truly regarded and understood as something that can be accessed by all without diminishing the value of it. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, I think also additionally, if we're talking about um, people getting an unfair leg up in admissions, um, legacy admissions are somewhere to look, uh, admissions for people who give donations is somewhere to look. Just there are so many other avenues in which uh, people actually do have unfair advantages um, that need to be examined before um, forcing students of color to um, basically just pitting different groups of color against one another um, in these admissions um, and viewing the entire uh, system of admissions in a more holistic way um, and understanding what's actually going on in the scene. Um, I agree. I am of the position of like, not only should race be a factor in admissions through affirmative action, because 
unlike legacy admissions, um, it is a method of distributing power and decolonizing power rather than maintaining power at a certain um, lineage or family or um, racialized group. Um, but I also think we can all agree that like equitable access to higher education should go beyond that. Um, like Eden was saying, I would love to see the university reach beyond the point of admissions, um, you know, where students are standing at the gates and looking in um, and kind of go into high school or further um, to not only tell students that, that Yale is um, for you too, but like show them. I feel like my ideal system of, of admissions would allow for more than just certain modes of scholarship and excellence to be valued, um, meaning, you know, stellar test scores or rhetorically beautiful essays as um, the indicator of a good student. Um, I think placing less value on these markers, um, which if you think about it, don't really tell you much about a student, um, would also help the narrative of black, native, brown students taking the place of a more deserving or a more excellent um, on paper student. Yeah, and I think this point has been brought up before, but I think I would definitely love to see this conversation of educational equity not just be rooted in this discussion of affirmative action, but extend beyond that. I took a class before on how the United States public education policy has intentionally disproportionately disadvantaged black and brown students throughout history. And I would love to see educational equity start like from the get-go and not rely on the current solutions of like um this idea of meritocracy uh, using money and like capitalist solutions like paying for private schools to get you to that idea of an equal playing field so that when it comes times to when it comes time to apply to colleges then you're looked at on the same field as other students um so yeah i think there's much more to this conversation than affirmative action and i think I would love to see that dialogue shift away from affirmative action and extend further. And I know that definitely does not fall directly on the responsibility of the university, but I think universities can definitely play a part in that. Yeah, 100% agree with Michelle. Um, is also like what I was gonna talk about in terms of like shifting the intervention um, on educational equity, on the topic of edu educational equity, not on like the moment when there are people are applying for colleges, but rather even before that, so like as Michelle kind of said, it's like a lot about like allocating resources to, you know, high, high schools that are, are just generally like areas and communities that have been like severely under-resourced throughout history. Um, I'm also, um, I, I would also love to see the conversation of educational equity be extended to like more identities just beyond like race and class. For example, like undocumented students um, still face so many different barriers um, due to their status um, and that, and you know affirmative action isn't going to like simply just take that away like it's, it requires a lot of different like systemic interventions that target and provide like different sort of resources and solutions to people with different marginalized identities um so yeah i think that's what i kind of hope for the future um just for like different forms of interventions that um really address the root kind of systemic inequities um in education and such yeah i agree with the points you all made and i think to also briefly mention a point that i forgot 
who exactly brought this up earlier, but um, the fact that we're focusing so much on affirmative action and disputing like whether it's quote unquote correct or good or bad is also really derailing attention from racial justice organizations who are also fighting for educational equity in a K through 12 system too, right? Um, yeah, and I, and I definitely really want to take some uh, educational studies courses at Yale. Like that's like one of my goals, uh, hopefully for next year. Um, because over the summer I was thinking, like I was doing a lot of reflecting and brainstorming and just like thinking about the public school I used to go to, um, like before high school and how drastically different it was from the private school I eventually went to. Um, and just like thinking about how important education really is to changing the lives of people for really generations to come, you know, like, uh, like it's such an important thing. And I was thinking like, wow, like having a career in education and education policy would be so influential to so many people. So yeah, that was one thing I was thinking a lot about during quarantine. I think something I also want to add also is that like, I think affirmative action is like one conversation and this might be like just kind of it's tangentially related, but not really on the topic of affirmative action. I think like there there should also be a conversation about like how elite colleges treat like students of like marginalized identities because um this is not to discourage any people out there who want to apply to Yale, but Yale is a very violent institution and how they treat like students of color and students of different marginalized identities is actually horrendous you know like i i'm a junior here at yale and i've been only been here for 2.5 years and you know my literally my first year within like the first couple of weeks i distinctly remember like um a flyer being um like stood under like my sweet door about like a protest um for nelson pinos who you know was basically trapped in a church um because if he were to leave that church um he would, he would be deported by, he would be arrested and deported by ICE. Um, in addition to that, my sophomore year, um, the shooting of Paul Witherspoon um, and Stephanie Washington and the withdrawal of like 13 ERNM professors and such. So it's like Yale is very much like contributing to like a lot of structural violence um, towards like students of color. And I think that should also be very much recognized that like, you know, affirmative action is just one, one small step to like really rectifying systemic inequities, but a lot of it also um, rely is also placed a lot of like the labor should also be and pressure should be placed on the university to really make this place like better for like students of color um, because it's you know getting here is like one thing but like to be treated like unfairly and poorly here is just like also something to like really consider and like how like educational equity how like yeah how educational equity is really like achieved I agree with that point um but Angel Reina, if you want to take a class, an ed studies class that will change your life, it is take Ed and Empire. It is amazing. I'll write it down. Thanks, Nita. <laughs> but yeah, um, we're almost done. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit, like, in sort of conclusion. Um, like, my thoughts weren't too cohesive when, like, I wrote this, but... Um, I was just thinking a lot about sort of what I just said, how important education is and how it really changes 
the lives of people and like like their lives and the lives of generations to come after them. And I don't know, it just sucks that there are so many members, for example, of like the Asian American community that are just like standing in the way of progress. And I don't want to like put all the blame on like Asian Americans too, but also it just, I don't know, it's just like really frustrating and really sad to see. But yeah, not sure if like you all have any parting thoughts on how we can be better allies and yeah. Yeah, I I, I very much like um, empathize with like a lot of your sentiments because I think like at times um, it can be very frustrating. I think like having been in this work for like one and a half years and really engaged like really intimately with this community, um, I think I've seen very like very hopeful times and very frustrating times um and i think like you know this isn't a complete thought um but i think like to be better allies um this is specifically targeted towards like asian americans and the asian american community um but i think it begins with just like looking through history i think a lot of my answer is always just just like to kind of turn back to history when i don't know what to kind of do um and i think for me like at Yale specifically, like what kind of made the conversation about affirmative action um, a little bit more easier for me to kind of formulate my stance on was just like looking back at history. Um, so I like my first, my, my fall semester of my sophomore year, I created, um, I did research in the archives of the Asian American Cultural Center and formulated a workshop to present to like Yale Asian American first years. And one of the things that I covered was um, Specifically, like when Yale Asian Americans um, mobilized, um, I forget 1960s, 1970s, around that kind of time period. Um, basically, they mobilized to protest the um, the appointment of um, something Starant. Um, I forget his name, but basically, if people don't know, Starant was um, a hallmark figure of the Bay case. Um, what is kind of like noted as like one of like the OG like affirmative action cases that like end up like saying that like racial quotas weren't basically allowed. Um, but Peter Starant was basically the person who convinced like um, the plaintiff of that case to file a lawsuit and, you know, begin the kind of destruction, the process of destroying affirmative action and such. And Peter Starant was actually like appointed as the Dean of Yale SOM, um, the admissions Dean of Yale SOM. And, I think for me, like seeing that history of like Yale Asian Americans, like mobilizing against like the, that appointment and, you know, supporting like affirmative action practices really like helped me understand like why it is so necessary for me to continue on that kind of legacy. So again, like there are a lot of parallels right now with like, you know, attacks on affirmative action like now and back then. Um, so I, I think I just strongly urge for like Asian Americans who, you know, may have very strict views currently on affirmative action or maybe just like want to like know get to know more knowledge about like Asian American positionality within society and like racialization and stuff like that. Um, I, I would highly suggest just like looking back at history, whether that be like going, well, not going to the, the ACC archives because obviously it's closed right now, um, but just like looking at like historical documents um, at um, here at Yale, or like taking a Asian American history class here, um, or just like 
Google is free. Um, we love Google. Um, just research Asian American history and understand like the term Asian American, the, the origin of the term Asian American was a very political one. And it is very much a term that has been always rooted in interracial solidarity. So it's kind of sad that like this term has been very liberalized to the point where like we have like members of our community really fighting against other communities of color um, when all of us really have a stake in this fight, um, combating white supremacy and such. Yeah, um, Eden, Nina, and Michelle, if you all have any like pieces of advice to the listeners too, if like listeners out there are interested in learning more about um, affirmative action, education equity, Kevin, you gave some you gave some great uh, points just now. Yeah, um, Kevin pretty much summed it up, honestly, really comprehensive. Um, I think if, you know, for anyone listening out there, if you feel that you want to do something about affirmative action in your own life, I think similarly to what Kevin said, just a matter of having just introspection within yourself as to what has led to your current um, conception of affirmative action, examining where you got that information, why um, you believe what you do. And then after examining that, uh, facilitating conversations with those close to you, um, it can feel, I know that I've felt incredibly um, hopeless, honestly, sometimes in trying to change people's opinions and it can get incredibly frustrating. Um, but in taking the time to um, sit down with people, um, get where they're coming from, try and have that open dialogue, um, hopefully that you can shift the needle in some way in your own personal sphere. I totally agree. I think um, learning history through reading books, if you have access to classes, um, not just on Asian American history, but also like racial equity, racial justice in general. Um, I think learning more for yourself and formulating your own opinions is great. And then definitely um, if you're able to have conversations with the people around you. Um, and also if there are people around you who are also interested, maybe you guys could look into these things together um, and encourage that kind of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything everyone said. Um, I guess I'll leave um, the people who may be listening with um, something special that I learned this semester. Um, and it's that solidarity is not just a word. It's not a metaphor. It's um, not a buzzword. It's like an actual um, action. And it's a philosophy with which you need to shape and reshape perhaps um, the ideas, the preconceptions that you might already have about affirmative action, about education and the way that it stands now, um, about interracial solidarity and um, interracial relations, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because to me, solidarity means um, the success of one group is the success of all. And I think that that affects the way that you think about issues like affirmative action. Um, I think it, you know, like Eden said, it's not it shouldn't be a zero sum game, but rather a total sum game. And, um, you know, a, a big picture understanding of, you know, you as an Asian person or a white student may in fact not be more deserving um, of, you know, black and brown students who may get um, positions, places at these elite institutions over you because um, even if they score lower than you on the SAT or even if they have a lower GPA than normal, um, it's an understanding that my group as an Asian student, my group as a white student is overrepresented at this particular school because of anti-Blackness at large, um, because of society at large, and because of these institutional 
roadblocks that these groups have to face. Um, because I think to me at that point of solidarity, you're not existing for yourself um, or for your group, but you're existing for others. And I think if we can all realize that a little bit better um, or you know, maybe implement that in um, our opinions of things like affirmative action, I think we'll all be a little bit better off. Thank you all so, so much. And sorry that we're going a little bit over. I promise it'll be like five more minutes. Um, but I hope this conversation was like some sort of starting block for you to do your own research out there. Um, if you well, like, once again, as I mentioned um, in the first episode, I put together a list of resources that I came across um, when I was doing research for this episode and the previous one. And Eden, Nina, Michelle, and Kevin, if you all have any specific resources that you want to share too, like feel free to send them to me, and I'll include them in the document as well. Um, but yeah, everyone, like, please, like, you know, keep an open mind. Do your research, like challenge ideas, um, practice more empathy. Like we, we need, we definitely need more empathy uh, during this time. But uh, once again, Eden, Nina, Michelle, and Kevin, thank you all so much for being on this podcast. Before you go, do you all want to like plug your social medias, uh, say and also social medias, um, any events that are going to happen in the near future? Not sure if uh, like you're planning any, but yeah, feel free to plug all your info right now. Sure. Um, yeah, my Instagram is nina.todd. Um, BSA's Instagram is at B-S-A-Y-A-L-E. So BSA Yale, one Y. Um, and my Instagram is at eden.senay. Yeah, my Instagram is Michelle Y-L-I-A-N-G. And also's Instagram account is Yale also. So just all together. Yeah, and my Instagram handle is kevm.quach, um, so K-E-V-M dot Q-A-C-H. Perfect. Thank you all so much for being on the podcast. And thank you to everyone for listening to the second part of the Affirmative Action series. Uh, please make sure you go follow our social media at Homecoming Pod. Subscribe to Homecoming and give us those five stars on iTunes. I will see you all next Saturday with a brand new episode with the South Asian Youth Initiative.